Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here are some of the things Claudine Sibley has heard folks say about homeless people in California. She's heard them say homeless people are too lazy to work. She's heard them say homeless people are just looking for money for drugs. So there it's a lot of mostly the same thing. It's like this like a like a recording on loop, right? Sometimes Claudine hears these kinds of sentiments from friends, sometimes from elected officials. That's when, if she can, she'll toss them a conversational bomb. I get offended, I have a smile on my face, and then I let them know. I may not look like it, but I've been one of those people. (laughs) It was 15 years ago that Claudine ended up on the street. She actually lived in her car for a while. Then the repo man came. The main thing Claudine remembers from that time is how invisible she felt. She talks about walking down the sidewalk and getting the distinct impression she was one level lower than a human being. Things are really different now. Claudine is comfortable. But she thinks back on that invisible feeling a lot. She wants to shatter it. So a few months back, when she got this invitation to help researchers study California's homelessness crisis, she could not turn it down. I jumped at the chance. I couldn't believe it. Like, I felt so honored to be asked, and I felt special. Claudine's job was to shadow the team as they worked. She would listen in let the researchers know when something they said didn't hit right. Claudine remembers training one woman and then following her out into the field. And so um, I stood by as she talked to an unsheltered person out in the encampment. And I have to tell you, I I stood there and I was like, oh, I'm making notes, like mental notes of things that I would pull the researcher aside after the conversation with the unhoused person so I could talk to her about it, right? Like what? Like the tone, you know, like your your your, your tone, like um, like bring the decibels of your voice down, like your 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 tone sounds anxious. Um, and when you're when if you sound anxious to me, you probably sound anxious to the person that you're interviewing, like a anxious, like a fear, like a fear anxious, right? Like a like, a, I'm uncomfortable talking to this person, to this homeless person right now, and I just want to um, rush through the piece that I have to say so I can be done talking to them. The idea here was that if the researchers could make the people they were studying more comfortable opening up, they might get better data. And their report was just released, the California Statewide Study of People Experiencing Homelessness. It offers this uncommonly intimate portrait of what life on the streets really looks like. I can hear how proud you are of the work you did here. Do you ever think about, like, just keeping the study with you so you can haul it out 
whenever you have one of those moments with someone who's like, eh, these homeless people, they just want to stay on the streets. Yes, and yes, Mary. You know, um, I think it's easy to judge someone when you have never walked, walked, you know, any time at all in their shoes. It's it's easy to look at them and, you know, um, and judge them. And the older I get, the more I get to a place where I'm seeking understanding like this, this, you know, um, point of intersection where I'm connecting with another human and helping them see, see what I see, you know. Today on the show, Claudine wants you to know the face of homelessness is not who you think it is. And the study she just helped to build proves that. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. To understand why the California statewide study of people experiencing homelessness is such a big deal, I wanted to speak with someone who knows this story deeply, which is how I ended up on the phone with Ethan Ward. Like Claudine, Ethan's been homeless himself. He lived in his car for a year, and he's writing a book about it. But he's also been a reporter covering the homelessness beat in Los Angeles. Ethan says this latest report It was really focused on characterizing who the homeless are in California, which goes hand-in-hand with another study that came out just a few weeks back, the Greater Los Angeles Homeless Count. That research captured just how quickly the unhoused population is growing. There was a 9% increase across L.A. County, and there was a 10% increase in the city of L.A. That seems big to me. Is it big? Yes. I mean, anytime you have an increase of people that are experiencing homelessness anywhere, I think that's a big deal. I know you noticed that there was a 16% increase from last year in the number of people living in their cars, which is something you Mm. had experience with. Yes. How did that hit you? That was really disheartening. That was the number that actually stood out the most to me because obviously, like like you said, that was me in that situation. And my first thought was, this is severely undercounted. Mind you, it's a point in time count. So it's just on any given night. It's not an accurate number. It's just kind of like an estimate. But I remember when I was living in my car, no one counted me. Like I was definitely not participating in any of those things. So all I kept thinking was, this is the number that they have on paper. But I just knew that there were so many more people. And my heart kind of sunk a little bit because because I knew exactly what they were going through. I knew exactly what their day was like. I know exactly what they're thinking. I know the challenges that they have. And so for me, I was just like, man, like 
I hope that they have the strength to continue on. Then came this latest research, the study Claudine worked on. The University of California, San Francisco has called it a landmark report. And I asked Ethan why. There are plenty of studies that are always coming out about the homelessness crisis, but I don't think anyone that has been in depth to this extent, like this particular one, they spent an entire year collecting data and doing questionnaires and doing interviews with people. It's not just one night of counting people. Yeah, it's not like a point in time count of one night or actually a few days where they're counting different people. It wasn't like that. They really did invest in making sure that they had the time to really sit with people and really, really understand what people were going through and what led them um, into homelessness. So I really, really did appreciate that. Yeah, the methodology seemed really interesting to me. Like they divided California into eight regions, conducted more than 3,000 surveys, and then they picked out 365 people to have hour-long interviews with, which is a long time. It is. First of all, it was like 3,200 people across the state. And then out of that 3,200 people, they chose 365 people to do more in-depth interviews with. They also really engaged community organizations that were already working in this space so they can get connected to people. Like I mentioned earlier, I was living in my car. No one counted me during the point in time count. You're saying that, that because they had an advisory board, they had access to people, whereas they may not have had access without them. Exactly. They found people to talk to that I'm sure they would have never have talked to had they not really been dialed in and connected to those people. So they were able to talk to people with like the LGBTQ community, for instance, or people that were in domestic violence shelters. You know, they were able to get referrals then from those people that they talked to from other people that they knew. You know what I mean? So it really, really helped to really paint a clear picture of who exactly we're talking about when we talk about the homelessness crisis across California. I think what you're saying is they didn't just speak to the most visible people, the most obvious people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I wonder if you can tell me the story of one of the people the study focused on, a guy named Carlos. His story really stood out to me because he had a work injury. He could no longer afford his apartment, so he then had to move out and then move in with other people. But then, obviously, when that happens, you have conflicts that arise. So then he decided, I think I'm going to move in with my family. And Carlos was lucky because he actually had family that he could move in with. But then he gets there. And then realizes like, oh, my, you know, I think it was a sister. You know, she has her own life. She has her family. I don't want to be a burden to her family. I'm going to move into my car. And then he moves into his car and then he starts to get tickets because when you have never experienced homelessness before, you don't realize that there are literally signs everywhere that you don't notice when you have a place to live. That like, I can't park here overnight or there's timing. You're just not thinking about it in that way. So then he gets starts getting tickets and then his car becomes impounded and then he ends up in an encampment on the street. But see, most people, when they see him, they didn't see all of that prior story. They just see him in the encampment. And then all of the stereotypes and stigmas that come along with that are then piled onto him, even though they may have nothing to do with him. Yeah, it really shows this domino effect where it's like he fell off a ladder. It's like one of those really random things to mm-hmm. happen to you. And that like one thing trickled down and ended with him in an encampment near City Hall. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think that that is the story that gets left out when we're talking about this and when people don't really hear on the news is that domino effect that you just said of how that happens. And it's one thing that leads to another. And before you know it, you're like, 
holy crap, how do I get out of this? And then it gets to the point where once you're in it, for a lot of people, and this was also in the report, they just they are they feel hopeless. They're like, I don't even have the energy anymore to deal with this. I am now depressed because I'm on waiting list and there's seemingly nowhere for me to go. So they start to feel like, well, why am I even trying? And then they give up. And then that spirals into a lot of people who may have never struggled with addiction before are now turning to alcohol and drugs to cope with the fact that they're living on the streets. And then you can see how that also adds to the downward spiral. Yeah, I was struck by one man's story in this report. He actually started using meth because he needed to stay awake in case he had to flee his encampment because of the cops. And so it became this really interesting, like, yes, homelessness was tied in with this person's drug use, but maybe not in the way I'd anticipated. This person had actually stopped drinking because they were like, well, then I'll fall asleep and I won't be able to leave if I need to leave. Mm-hmm. And he was fleeing the cops, but there are also people that are staying awake because they're just fearful of their safety. I've done stories about this, reporting stories where people are being attacked in their encampments. Their things are being thrown in the trash. There are like vigilantes who think that they're doing the public, the, doing a public service by like trying to scare people off. You've talked about how one of the big myths about homelessness in California is that the people are somehow coming from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And this study really digs into that myth and debunks it. It shows that 75% of the people they talked to were still living in the same county as their last housing. They're essentially the neighbors of the housed people. Yes, yes. Nine out of 10 participants, I think they said, lost their last housing in California. 11%, the report found, stayed within California but lived in a different census region. And then almost 90% were born in the U.S. and two-thirds of them were born in California. So this myth that somehow unhoused people that are on the streets are not our neighbors, are not Californians, is the biggest myth of them all. These people grew up in their communities. They went to elementary school, middle school, high school in these communities. They had jobs. They were employed. One more thing that struck me is the fact that so many of the people surveyed here thought that just a little extra cash might have prevented their homelessness for a pretty substantial period of time. I think 70% of people said like $300, $500 a month of rental assistance would have worked even more said like a one-time payment of five or 10,000 could have done the trick. Yeah. These are not huge numbers. I mean, they're substantial. Like a few thousand dollars is substantial. How do you think this compares to actually what's being done in a place like Los Angeles, where, as you said, there are so many things, they're trying so many things, throwing spaghetti at the wall to try to fix the homelessness problem. But then when you look at the numbers, The people who are actually homeless are like, I kind of just needed a little money. Yeah. I actually thought that that was one of the most interesting things that was in the report. And I think I think the vast majority of people said that they would have preferred some type of housing voucher, which basically Mm -hmm. is a subsidy where that they can use that would cover a portion of whatever the rent that they're paying. Well, and we have housing vouchers. Yeah. And we have them. But because the housing market is so tight. There's really no accountability there. And it reminds me of the so many people that I've met living on the street who actually have vouchers while they're living in tents or in encampments and they cannot use them. One, they're going up against people 
who don't need vouchers for one, you know? And so if you're a landlord and you have like an apartment for rent and you have 30 people who are applying to the apartment and like 20 of them don't need a housing voucher, you're already just going to buy be like, I'm not going to deal with that because why should I have to deal with that if I don't have to? A big thing is they won't even know what the vouchers are. A lot of landlords don't even know how they operate. They don't understand how they work. And so when people don't know, they rather not deal with it. And I think addressing that part of like the voucher process is going to be something that all policymakers are going to have to really like hone in and deal with because there are a lot of vouchers out there, but a lot of people that can't use them for various reasons. After the break, why so many in California choose to remain on the street, even when some form of shelter is offered, and how Ethan thinks the state should shake things up. The California statewide study's findings are remarkable in just how expansive they are. The survey asked participants about how they became homeless, of course, but it also sought detailed answers to questions about race, age, family structure, children, gender, work, even pregnancy. One of the most striking facts from this mountain of data is that California's homeless population is aging. The median age of the 171,000 people experiencing homelessness in the state is now 47. And lots of people on the street seem to have given up on finding housing at all. I asked Ethan if he was surprised by that finding. I was not surprised. I have met many people during my time reporting on homelessness that have basically told me the same thing. Like, even when I go out to tell them, like, oh, you know, they're going to be, you know, they're supposed to be this or they're supposed to be doing that. They're like, yeah, whatever. I've been out here long enough to know, like, this is all talk. Like, all, and especially when we talk about money, you know, they hear about this. They're like, they're spending billions of dollars, you know, to fix this problem. I don't see how this is helping me. Where can I go now? Is someone putting me in an apartment now? And they've been told so many things and given so many promises. Um, even when I was talking to the mayor about the outreach that they're doing, they still haven't gotten to the point where they're even giving people things in writing. Like they say, like, if you come with me, this is what we're going to guarantee you. It's always like, leave the tent, leave the life that you've built here where you know there's some semblance of stability and you form community with people and come with me to this mysterious hotel or motel somewhere and eventually we'll connect you to permanent housing. And a lot of people don't get that connection. And there's no promise of how long the housing lasts, I guess. Exactly, because there's not enough permanent places for people to go. And then I've heard them complain about like the rules that come along with that, whereas in their tent, they, you know, obviously don't have rules and they don't have all of these different things to, um, to deal with. And so it does get to the point where they do feel like, why should I even care about this anymore? Why do I need to continue? One guy who was living in a tent talked about the rules you're talking about of living in a hotel room, how I think he was saying you could only leave between one and three or something like that. You had to stay in the building. And for him, he was like, why would I stay? I felt like a prisoner. This seems fixable, though, by asking people what they need. 
Yeah. I think what most people want and what they need is to be treated like human beings and not like prisoners. And I think that there's this misconception that if you're unhoused or you're on the streets, that one, you should take whatever someone gives you and be happy with it. That's the first thing that we tell people. Like they should be grateful, you know, to have to be in this place because at least they're not on the streets in, in my way or in my line of view. And I don't think that that's fair. You know, the only, I guess, quote unquote, crime that most unhoused people have committed is poverty. Yeah. They feel like this report is coming out at such an interesting time. I've noticed homelessness, what causes it and how it could be fixed, is emerging as this right-wing talking point, Mm. especially the idea that giving people housing before addressing whatever other needs they have, mental health challenges, addiction, whatever, is somehow bad or wrong. Homelessness in Portland is exploding. So what'd the city do? Did they round up the mentally ill and get them treatment? Did they crack down on drugs? Nope. Portland spent $50 million to build safe rest villages for the homeless. Have you noticed that too? I have, and I don't understand it. I kind of feel like everyone needs to be in a house and having secure, stable housing is the path that leads to you being able to start getting treatment if you are dealing with a substance use issue or you do have mental health issues. I think the report found that it said 44% of all the people that they surveyed were looking for employment. You know, but if you don't have a place to live and to do basic things like wash your clothes, that's going to make it harder for you to get a job or even feel comfortable having a job. So housing really is the kind of foundational baseline for a lot of these other things to work. Yeah. I mean, the more that I've noticed this housing first idea getting attacked by the right, the more weird it seems to me. Because first of all, housing first was really supercharged under the George W. Bush administration, which is a Republican administration, obviously. Um, But now you see people like there's this tech mogul, John Lonsdale, who's called housing first Marxist, like an attempt to blame homelessness on capitalism, sort of (laughs) acknowledging like, oh, it makes a logical sense to give people housing first, but you need to address all these other things before you do that. It's just a very weird sort of through the looking glass thing to be watching happen. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. And it's it's weird to me because even if you are like a capitalist and all you care about is money, I'm like, common sense says that like the more people that are in stable housing and can go about their day and go get jobs can contribute to the economy, that kind of helps everyone's bottom line. So even if you're in it for solely like capitalistic purposes and wanting enough people to be in a place where they can contribute to the economy and pay taxes and do all this and that, it seems like you would definitely be an advocate for people being in a house. I don't think people really think about how important it is, like just having access to a restroom. You know what I mean? Like having access to a restroom. My life revolved around the restroom when I lived in my car. Like I literally did not eat after a certain time of the day because I was like, there's nowhere for me to go once I go to sleep at night in my car. And my life for an entire year revolved around that. And I remember getting back into my own place and thinking like, oh my God, I can use the bathroom whenever I need. I can take a shower whenever I need. Like I don't have to like, my life doesn't have to revolve around this time schedule anymore. And I think even those very, very simple things people don't really think about because they're just so intrinsic to their to their day-to-day life. It's not something that they have to think about, but when you don't have a house, it's all you think about. You know, the last time I interviewed you, which was a little more than a year ago, 
You were talking about how California needed to reframe its homelessness problem as a natural disaster. Yeah. And I was just reading an interview with Karen Bass, the mayor of Los Angeles. And at the very end, she compared the homelessness crisis to an earthquake. It made me wonder if you think public officials in California are moving in the right direction, (laughs) at least rhetorically. (laughs) I will say this. She, on her first day in office, the mayor, Mayor Bass, she did declare homelessness a state of emergency. So that really did free up a lot of the bureaucratic hurdles that a lot of people were dealing with. It streamlines a lot of the processes that they have to go through. She's been very... uh, I think on top of that aspect, and I think framing it as a disaster and as an emergency is definitely um, helpful. But if I can just go back to that report, we also need to really now dig deeper into like this very general talk of like, the first thing that we decided is that we need to increase access to affordable housing to extremely low income people. How? By producing more housing and rental subsidies and supporting their use on the rental market. And it's like, okay. Yeah, like we have a lot of reports to say that we I think we're all in agreement that that needs to happen. But how do we really actually make that happen in reality? Because like I said, a lot of the people that are using the the subsidies are trying to use the subsidies, I should say, they are meeting roadblocks. Who are those roadblocks? Who are those people? What are we doing to address that? It sounds like you're saying this report does a really good job of articulating the problem, but maybe not as great of a job at articulating the solution. Well, they had solutions. They had recommendations. But like I say, I always feel like when I was reading it, I felt like, okay, great. I know this. But maybe I'm speaking from this from someone that reports on homelessness. It's like, obviously, I know that, yes, we need, you know, more affordable housing for low income people. But we have stuff in place now, like the vouchers that can be used, but people are not able to use them for various reasons. Like it reminded me of that woman that I wrote about, Sarah Fay, who worked in the homelessness space and did not have a place to live. She was living between her grandmother's garage, motels, and her car. And she said she had tried to use a voucher for three years. Now I'm thinking if this woman who works in this space and she's actually responsible for connecting other young people to homelessness services, if she can't find a place and can't find a house and she has a college degree, what are we really asking and expecting of people who do not have even what she had? And those are the things that I that I want to see a called out or addressed. And when we're talking about solutions, it does sometimes feel very generic and very like, okay, like, yes, increase access to low, you know, barrier mental health services. And it's like, okay, great. But last summer, the governor vetoed a bill to set up drug overdose prevention programs in some California cities. It's interesting. It sounds like you're saying the solutions here are like frustratingly simple, like so simple. <laughs> like <laughs> give someone empathy, give someone a place to live, all these sorts of things. But there are all these barriers to getting there. Yeah. And I, like I said, I really appreciate the report. I want to be very clear. I think the report is amazing. And as someone, I looked at it for leads, for stories. You know, I, I felt like it did a really good job of like laying out this picture. And my takeaway is I'm hoping that because they did such a good job of laying this out, that we can actually really now start to get into the part of the conversation where they have listed these suggestions for making things better. But now we should really be digging into the weeds of the barriers that are preventing us from doing that and start calling that out. That's what I would like to see happen going forward. 
Ethan, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Ethan Ward is the founder of Heat Drawn Media and the host of Reputation. It's a podcast. Go check it out wherever you listen. Claudine Sipoli, who you heard from at the top of the show, co-led UCSF's Lived Experience Advisory Board for the California Statewide Study of People Experiencing Homelessness. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.